You're listening to the Carnegie Tsinghua China in the World podcast, a series of conversations with Chinese and international experts on China's foreign policy, international role, and China's relations with the world. Brought to you from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, located here in Beijing. I'm Paul Hanley, the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, and I'll be your host. Today I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, uh, Michael Swain, a senior associate at the Carnegie's Asia program in Washington, D.C., and one of the most prominent American analysts on this topic, uh, Chinese security studies. Michael, we're thrilled to, have you, thrilled to have you here with us today to discuss territorial disputes in the East China Sea and U.S.-China interactions in the Asia-Pacific. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Paul. Glad to be here. Last year, you completed the first comprehensive assessment of the current and possible future impact of China's military capabilities and foreign security policies on Tokyo and the U.S.-Japan alliance, along with an examination of the capacity and willingness of the U.S. and Japan to respond to this challenge. Your conclusion was that the most likely potential challenge to the U.S.-Japan alliance over the next 15 to 20 years does not involve full-scale military conflict between Japan and China or the United States. Have developments since the report was completed, including the continued deterioration of relations between China and Japan, changed your assessment of the risk of a clash between these actors? Well, thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, we completed that study at the end of last year, and it was a multi-link, multi-year study, rather, uh, with a lot of different moving parts to it, um, trying to assess the different possibilities for the region and for Northeast Asia in particular, emerging from China's military modernization. And you're right, we did not uh, conclude that the issue here is one of war or peace. And I don't think that has changed uh, one bit in the interim since that report appeared. Uh, because the main reason that we gave for that conclusion uh, is that there, are, there is nothing other than the possibility of an inadvertent escalation of a crisis that could occur. I mean, that's always possible, some kind of an incident, an accidental collision, or other type of um, behavior that could provoke escalation on one side or the other, um, that barring that escalation into something really, really large scale, mm -hmm. which I think is highly unlikely. I don't think the dynamics of escalation are such that you would get um, movement up to the point of really widespread conflict. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a narrow range of possibilities. Uh, neither country really wants to see uh, military conflict. That's not their objective. Neither um, country, meaning Japan and China. Japan and China, mm -hmm. right, and certainly not the United States. Right. Um, the fear, I think, is of inadvertent conflict coming out of a crisis, that uh, coming out of some kind of an incident, as I said. But even under those conditions, I think both sides, including the United States, would try mightily to, re to restrict whatever, whatever kind of escalation would occur in, these, mm -hmm. in those kinds of circumstances. So what we're dealing with really is, is a situation where there is a sort of nationalist agenda uh, that both countries are operating under. Uh, this, this issue, the East China Sea and the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands dispute is front and center in that, in that dynamic. Um, neither side for domestic political reasons in part uh, and for some concerns about the uncertainties of the future uh, is willing to back away or back down or basically defuse the situation. So you're, you're in an environment here where 
certainly you could have something untoward that happens. But for any country to sort of deliberately choose to escalate this to the point of major mm -hmm. conflict, I think is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. totally, totally uh, unlikely, mm -hmm. very remote. So in, in addition to inadvertent clash or conflict that you mentioned, what are some of the other likely challenges to the U.S.-Japan alliance over the next 15 to 20 years that you identified in your report? And how did you lay out, in terms of recommendations, U.S. and Japan Japanese policymakers best respond to these challenges? Well, I think from a broader perspective, one of the real challenges is to strike the right balance in the alliance, in the U.S.-Japan alliance, between improving the ability of the two countries to anticipate and to respond to crises of one sort or another, whether it be a North Korean crisis or one to do with China, uh, to be able to better understand what are the likely possibilities and how the two sides could well respond mm -hmm. uh, in dealing with that sort of situation on the one hand, without, however, making it appear as if both countries are preparing for such a conflict or they are in some way anticipating or assuming such a conflict is going to occur, which of course would provoke the Chinese into thinking this is another mm -hmm. part of a large containment type of behavior and it's a militarization, mm -hmm. if you will, of Northeast Asia. I mean, getting that balance right in the relationship I think is a very important thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a question of military relations between mm -hmm. Japan and the United States. It's a question of the overall relationship that both countries have, not just with each other, but in the region. Mm -hmm. um, on the Japanese side, you, you have a country that is uh, now certainly not in the best of economic conditions. Uh, it has a lot of constraints, uh, demographic and otherwise, for its long-term development. Uh, it has inherent limitations on how much it can develop its own military capabilities. Mm -hmm. So expectations, I think, have to be accurate in understanding where Japan is going and what it could do. Uh, and on the other hand, Japan is not about to become a militarized power the way right. China often says mm -hmm. uh, or implies it to be involved in, in, in moving in that direction. That is, a, I think, a fundamental distortion of Japan's mm -hmm. situation today. So the real problem is how do you get Japan to play as mm -hmm. a more responsible, more active actor Mm -hmm. in, the in the region, and particularly in the security realm, mm -hmm. in a way that is realistic yep. and in a way that doesn't appear to be, in some sense, provoking the situation there. So let me, let me, let me um, ask you about that, because you and I met today with a number of Chinese scholars talking primarily about regional issues, and the U.S.-Japan alliance was a big factor in that. Is it possible to strike the right balance in a way that convinces Chinese leaders and Chinese experts that we have the right balance because you've talked about the distortion of this Japan militarization issue. There's also, we hear, a distortion of what U.S. policy actually is when it comes to Japan. And I left our discussion wondering today whether it's even possible to right, strike the right balance. Uh, will the perception in China always be that uh, we haven't struck the right balance, that we're provoking the situation through Japan? Well, I think you're right, Paul. I mean, to some extent, you can never satisfy the Chinese on this. I mean, they always see uh, more of a conspiracy or a unified or coordinated policies on the part of Tokyo and Washington than, in fact, are there. Mm -hmm. And certainly much more, they, they often 
overemphasizing the degree to which they think policies are driven by them and by mm -hmm. concern about them as opposed to a general desire to shore up an alliance, to strengthen an alliance that is seen by both Tokyo and Washington as in general a stabilizing force in the mm -hmm. region. Uh, and not for negative reasons, for counterbalancing China necessarily, but simply yeah. because it acts in a, in a whole variety of ways uh, as a stabilizer for providing the United States for access in the region, for reassuring others that Japan is closely tied to the United States. And so for all those reasons, I think people look upon that as an important thing. Nonetheless, I do think that more could be done um, mm -hmm. by the United States in particular. Um, part of the problem, of course, is that China itself, because it's been quite assertive in recent years in dealing with the Senkaku Diaoyu issue yeah. and others, has played into this general theme uh, in Japan and elsewhere that China is a potential threat. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Japan and the United States have to act in lockstep with each other, particularly on the military security side in dealing with China. But my, my argument would be that, yes, that's true to a certain extent, but at the same time, that kind of activity comes alongside a perception, particularly in China and in South Korea, that what is going on in Japan today is much more than just the improvement of the alliance. It's a development on the part of certain right-wing elements in, in Japan right. to try and develop um, a much more assertive Japan, a Japan that rejects history, rejects the, the legacy of World War II, that wants to redefine Japan's role in the region in ways that sound more like Japan um, decades and decades ago, before mm -hmm. the war. Mm -hmm. I think that's a misperception of the Japanese right. situation, but I think that that historic history issue and the way it keeps coming up in, in Japanese politics and by Prime Minister Abe, I think it's highly corrosive to where Japan and the United States want to go. I think the United States in some ways needs to be more clear and more assertive with Japan about how damaging this is to the hopes of both Tokyo and Washington mm -hmm. to develop their alliance and to become a more active and a more positive uh, force mm -hmm. in the region. So let me step back from just the alliance and look at President Obama's overall policy to Asia. He's coming out here, obviously, in the next couple of days. His overarching theme will be to showcase the rebalancing strategy to Asia and that it has legs and that it's alive and well and it will continue. We heard today in our discussions that it's from the Chinese, from many of the Chinese perception is that it is this rebalancing strategy which has emboldened Japan uh, and countries like the Philippines to take an even stronger, more provocative potentially stance on their particular claims. And so how do you see the rebalancing strategy in your own view and how has, in your view, how has it changed or influenced China's calculus? with regards to being increasingly assertive or responding to or dealing with its territorial and maritime claims? Well, I, uh, in general, the concept behind the rebalancing, I, I endorse. I mean, I think it was important for the United States to communicate to the region uh, and to the world that it is deeply interested in Asia, uh, that that interest is, is not just continuous, but is going to grow uh, over time and that it has a commitment that's not gonna go away. Mm -hmm. It had to say that in the context of the aftermath of the Iraq and Afghanistan situations, a mm -hmm. feeling that the United States was pulling back in many ways, and a feeling of, of uncertainty about the American economy and where American capability was going to be in the right. future. And then, of course, in the context of China's greater growth and development, all of these things. 
I think there was a need for the United States to in some way communicate the fact mm -hmm. that um, it was not going to be the um, withdrawing from or downgrading right. its position in Asia. And it was over-invested in other parts of and, the world. Right, and then it was somewhat over-invested. Now, the follow-through and the messaging and mm -hmm. all the rest of that, I think, um, could have been done much better. Uh, and now, to a certain extent, part of the problems were somewhat unavoidable. Mm -hmm. The United States has not certainly been able to show that it has, in a sense, focused its attention on Asia, if that's what, what was implied by the rebalancing. It has still had to focus tremendously on events elsewhere, right. as we've seen right. in Ukraine and the Crimea, in Syria, Syria. I mean, going back to Libya. Right. I mean, there's, there's in Iran. I mean, there is still a very, very strong need for the United States to be focused on those areas as well. So where does that leave the rebalancing? Mm -hmm. I mean, for a lot of people, there's still an expectation that this is going to have to have some sort of clearer follow-through. Yeah. Because thus far, uh, a lot of impressions are that the United States has talked a lot, but hasn't really done a whole lot, other than a slight commitment to increasing military presence mm -hmm. and a fair amount, a pretty high amount of high-level interaction at the leadership level. Right. I mean, those activities, I think, are appreciated, but at the same time, they're not really going to give um, countries of the region the sense that the United States really is weighing in right. in a more significant way. Mm -hmm. So it's a real challenge for them. Yeah. I mean, I think they acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, the other problem is that the rebalancing has gotten to be too much understood to be a kind of a military action. Yeah. It's much more emphasized as being a security action. Mm -hmm. I think President Obama's trip to Asia this time and his following up trip in the fall to Beijing for the right. APEC meeting and the East Asian Summit, in part, is going to be designed to try to allay those concerns right. or to distract, not distract, that's a bad word, but to try to refocus attention on the part of a lot of countries in the region and elsewhere that the rebalancing is not first, foremost, and essentially about military security issues. Right. Yes, that's important. Yes, the U.S. has a role to play there. but. There is a very deliberate desire on President, you know, President Obama's trip this time to Asia yeah. and in his subsequent trips to show that the rebalancing is much more than just that. And I think you're going to see that in some of the speeches that are going to be made in, in this round of his visits to Asia and some of the other actions that are going to be taken. Yeah. Thank you very much, Michael, Sure. for sharing with us your views today, spending time with us today. It's always a pleasure when you come out, and you're welcome to come back out at any time and continue these kind of discussions, which are important for the relationship and for the region as well. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. If you'd like to read more of Michael Swain's research and work, you can find those at the Carnegie Endowment's website at carnegieendowment.org. From there, you can navigate to the Carnegie Tsinghua website to see the work of all the scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.